and all around the pizza boy. Look at it go. Make a dance, take a chance, up and all around the pizza boy. He's no schmo. They love him so when he flips that dough. He's Pizza Boy USA. Welcome, baseball fans, to episode 11 of Banish to the Pen the podcast and audio component of the website Banished to the Pen, a group baseball blog produced by fans of the Effectively Wild podcast. I am your host, Ryan Sullivan, editor-in-chief of NatsGM.com and the baron of all baseball podcasts. On this episode, I am thrilled to be joined by baseball prospectus author Russell Carlton. Russell, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Ryan. Well, uh, first and foremost, I want to thank you for joining me on a Friday night and sharing some time. And uh, I also want to thank you for being uh, such a big fan of our, uh, I guess, site. You've been mm -hmm. retweeting so many of our columns, and yeah. we've seen you commenting in the uh, Facebook, I guess I guess it's a conference room. I don't know what we would really call it, <laughs> but uh, in right. the Facebook groups and uh, kind of from the start. So first and foremost, just uh, I want to thank you for being so, uh, you know, uh, willing, you know, and helpful. Oh, let's see. you guys are doing some really good work. I'm, um, you know, I try and keep an eye out for um, people who are really into the uh, baseball writing in general. And obviously, you know, I've got a kind of a bent toward the gory math piece, but uh, um, but it's always cool to see uh, people get a chance to you know show what they can they can write about. It's just uh, it's fun to read and it keeps me occupied and uh, when I should be working at my real job. So. Yeah, that's kind of what we're hoping to do. So. Oh, good. Uh, let me start. First and foremost, I'm sure most of the audience is familiar uh, with you and your work, but uh, can you introduce everybody to the audience who may not know you quite as well? Well, let's see here. Um, I started, uh, um, started working at uh, BP in uh, 2009, um, in uh, December of 2009, and before that I had written for a website that doesn't exist anymore uh, called uh, Statistically Speaking that was um, uh, on a, a network that uh, went out of business. Um, but uh, I uh, was there uh, for a little while and been writing about baseball for, oh gosh, the last, I think, eight years uh, uh, formally. Um, and somewhere in the middle there, I uh, worked for um, the Cleveland Indians for uh, a couple of years. I worked as a consultant for them and um, had to kind of shut everything that was public down. And uh, now I'm back at BP and uh, been been having a great time. And um, I don't know what else you want to know about me. I'm uh, I'm a Sagittarius. So I like <laughs> long walks on the beach, you know. So, uh, but your background is in clinical psychology, correct? Yeah, I'm. Uh, uh, Grew up, uh, grew up in Cleveland, and uh, moved to moved to Chicago, and got a, a PhD in, in clinical psychology. Actually, I was um, trained as a and working as a therapist uh, for a little while, and then uh, we one of the last things you do as a clinical psychologist is to do a year long internship where you work, you know, forty hours a week, and uh, which in clinical psychology means you're actually working fifty hours and getting paid for forty. Um, <laughs> and I realized that the most horrible job in the world for your mental health was working in mental health, and uh, I decided that that wasn't the uh, that wasn't the job for me. Uh, it's a wonderful, noble profession, but it's just the wrong one for 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 what I do. And uh, so I got into research, and uh, I always had the stats background uh, to kind of fall back on. So it's been uh, kind of nice. So I. Um, I get to play around with numbers during the day for my real job, and then at night I come home and I work. I play around with numbers uh, for for baseball. So uh, it kind of uh, meshed, uh, kind of grew out naturally. So, 
and you are known as uh, Pizza Cutter Four on Twitter. <laughs> uh, what is the origin of Pizza Cutter? Because that seems a little unique. Anyways, it's probably the right word. <laughs> Yeah, so when I worked at Statistically Speaking, which is the website uh, b- before BP, um, at the time I was I was working actively as a as a mental health worker. So um, one of the things they told us in graduate school was, um, you know, therapists get their their more than their fair share of stalkers. So if you're going to do anything online, um, make sure you have a pseudonym. So. Um, back when I was in college, I was a, I had a, a radio show, and um, I, I, I was the pizza cutter on the radio show. That was my, my DJ name. And the reason was that my favorite song was uh, was the song called Pizza Cutter by the band Letters to Cleo. And I would open up my, sh- my show every week by saying, um, you know, that uh, we just started off with the pizza cutter song. Or I'm the, I am the pizza cutter. This is the pizza cutter show. And we just started off with the pizza cutter song on WKCO 91.9 FM in Gambier, Ohio. And that was my, my intro. So um, when I realized, you know, I'm like, oh, great, I need a pseudonym. So... I'll just do, I'll bring back pizza cutter. So that just became my, my name. And, uh, when I joined Twitter, I'm like, wait, by that point I'd gone back to using my real name, but I'm like, yeah, you know, why just, you know, be at Russell Carlton or whatever. I'll, I'll be at pizza cutter and my favorite number's four and, uh, at pizza cutter was already taken. So, um, that's where I just came up with the Twitter handle. That was, uh, that's the entire story. That's hysterical. First and foremost, you're the first doctor we've had on the podcast. But second of all, that might be the first Letters to Cleo reference I've heard in about 10 years. Oh, and I happen to see them in concert twice. So Here, got, and, here and Now uh, is a fun I song. You. I never got to see them. Really? Oh, yeah. wow. That girl jumping around on stage was one of the more fun experiences of my teenage years. I understand. Yeah. So, <laughs> But that's really <laughs> funny because I did not put two and two together that Pizza Cutter came from Letters to Cleo. That's yeah. That's well, you learn something new every day, and that'll have me laughing all weekend. So, mm-hmm. all right. So, uh, I don't know how to transition off of uh, mediocre '90s bands, but uh, <laughs> oh, uh, come on now, they were above, they were an above replacement level uh, okay. '90s band. They were a solid 55. I'll give them that for sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I do want to talk some baseball and pick your brain a little bit. Uh, you wrote a good article. Well, you wrote many, many good articles, but uh, one first and foremost that I want to start with, I think it was in the fall. I feel like it was November, mm-hmm. but uh, it was talking about against the grind, and you were kind of analyzing the effect of the grind, as you called it, and I'll let you kind of describe what you call it, what you encompass that with, but what it, the effect it has on hitters at the major league level. Um, I just kind of want to give you the floor to talk about your piece and then kind of what you found. Yeah, the grind the grind piece was, you know, I was starting to to read around and and you know, one of the things I've I've uh tried to bring into my work at BP and um in general is is that human element of it of uh of of playing the game of baseball. And there was some stuff that was being written about um you know, the Red Sox have, you know, a nap room at Fenway Park, which is kind of cool, you know, and and you know, you don't you don't think about um, baseball players and what they do between the hours of you know 10 p.m. and 7 p.m. the next day. You really only see them as you know blobs that run around on your your TV screen or your computer screen between the hours of 7 and 10. Or if it's you know weird baseball time, then it's you know after midnight. But um, that's you know that's really the only time we we think about what they're doing. But you know you think about with the grind. You know, baseball is a daily sport. You are there every night. It is a long game. It takes a lot of concentration. 
by the end of it, you know, in, in basketball and football, it's really, really rare that you hear anybody um, talk about, oh, you know, we gave him a day off just to rest. Um, you know, so a guy might be injured, but you don't hear about rest days. Um, so you with with in baseball, you know, you guys get a day off once every couple of weeks um, just because, you know, you got to you got to refresh and, and um, be able to uh, be able to function from from uh, all of that prolonged concentration. It's nice to have that. Um, so I said, you know, I wonder if there's any effect of this. And there's there was actually some academic research that was done that showed that um, plate discipline goes down as the as the season go, winds on, and uh, you know players just kind of not in not in you know a a severe drop off way, but you know if you look at little percentages uh, here and there, and you know an extra strike here or there um, that uh, that happens as as the season wears on, and so I said you know I wonder if if I took a look at this I could I could find some stuff um, that. Uh, um, that that uh, shows us I could do a little bit of a uh, little bit of math and see if I could find that effect. And so I looked at things like contact percentage and you know um, uh, just how often does he swing, uh, how often does he take a called strike, a couple of other a couple of other metrics. And sure enough, over time, if you you know start at opening day and you look at that graph, you know the the there's a very very slight tilt. Um, that goes downward, and and uh, the uh, the um, results get a little bit worse over time as you kind of creep on into August and September. And it makes sense, you know, the guys are tired. They're it's it's hot. It's it's e- even even when something is you know a dream job, and people say, oh, I'd love to get paid to play baseball. It's a job, and you know, after a while, anybody in in the audience who has a job, you probably are sitting there at some point, kind of going. Ugh. I hate this. I hate this. Get me out of here. And in case my boss is listening, I'd never say that. <laughs> um, but uh, but that was the the idea of the grind. Um, you know how do we um, how do we account for that? And how can how can teams start to think about that differently? Do they need to give their players more rest? Do they need to make sure that their players uh, actually have a chance to nap? Um, do we need to think about sleep and nutrition and and some of those things um, and how they might affect a player over time? Because you think about it, you know, it might not sound like much, you know, a one percent drop in uh, or in in contact rate. You might not be able to see that with the naked eye, but that's a lot of extra strikes. And if there's something we've learned from all that catcher framing research, it's that a couple of strikes here and there has a big effect over time. And so that's what we're finding. Um, so that's that's where the grind stuff started. Um, just trying to think about that uh, that human element, which then leads into kind of another article you published later on in the winter, and, and I think it was called the Tenth Man. If I have that wrong, I apologize, yeah. but I think I'm help trying to help everybody go find it. Uh, and you were looking at the manager's effect mm-hmm. on the grind and what they can do. And once again, I just want to let you kind of answer what you found. Yeah, I mean, there's all this talk of. Uh, you know what does a manager really do? And we like to focus on you know he he pushes the, you know for those those of us who play baseball sims and video games he pushes the hit and run button and he pushes the steal button and he does all those uh, those sorts of things. Um, but you know we talk about you know what's a manager's uh, job and um, a lot of people talk about well you know he he keeps the clubhouse going he keeps the mood light he makes sure that he doesn't uh, that the the team doesn't uh, kind of quit on him. And I said, you know, I wonder if if we looked at uh, at what the manager does to 
against the grind and we kind of we look at that from a uh, we can model that mathematically and see which uh, which manager has players who either don't seem to have that loss of functioning or maybe um, lose their their play discipline a little more slowly and so I you know I modeled and I found and surprisingly I was I was really surprised at uh, how strong the effects were um, that uh, there were certain managers who had, and it was consistent from year to year, um, who were good at stopping the grind from kind of sapping uh, a player's uh, strength over over time. Um, so that was a that was kind of interesting, and I I, I didn't expect the um, the effect to be um, so consistent. You know, and it was it's one thing to say, oh, you know, this manager happened to seem seem to have a good year. But you know, the next year he didn't uh, he didn't seem to hold on to it, and we see that uh, when we talk about managers, you know, like beating your Pythagorean record. Um, people have researched that and seen you know there's no consistency from year to year in terms of managers being able to do that, and so it looks like it's just kind of luck. Um, but this was this was consistent year to year, and this um, this really gets at you know what what's a manager's job. Well, and then that leads to probably the next question which is well then how valuable is a manager well i i did it for i did this for hitters and pitchers and i said okay well let's say that uh let let's let's do all kinds of mathematical controls and you know if people really want the gory details you can read the article and but let's set everybody on an equal playing field and make sure that we're not you know giving a manager credit because he has guys that are just you know better and i was using plate discipline as my my metric um and just based on plate discipline alone, which you know I'm just defining as whether the whether the pitch turned out to be a strike or not, um, and that was uh, that right there. Um, comparatively, the spread between on uh, from I used 2014, the spread between the best manager in baseball, who was uh, Buck Showalter, and the worst, who was Bo Porter, was actually about 65 runs. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of top to bottom. And I did a little more, um, uh, I did a five-year uh, time span. And, you know, the best manager over that time period was Bud Black. And he was at uh, almost 19 runs uh, above average. And, and uh, John Farrell was the uh, the lowest, and he was at uh, 17. So, you know, that's uh, that's a 36-run spread right there. And so, you know, you're talking about the difference between um, the best manager in baseball and the worst being, we're pro- we could probably, with the bigger sample size, we're a little more confident in that. And so we might say three wins, and there's probably a little bit of luck in there and some noise in there, but it looks like there's a pretty strong signal in there as well, saying that, you know, if you have a good manager, he might be worth um, three wins over um, your uh, your bottom level one, and maybe you know a win and a half over an average one, and you know we don't normally think of managers in in terms in those terms of being able to provide that value, um, but it looks like it's a it's a a pretty good chunk of value. I mean, think of what people would pay for a win and a half player. Yeah, which leads to uh, the next question, which is uh, the obvious question is then why are we not seeing managers one being paid significantly more and two. Are we not seeing managers "quote unquote" traded for more? Like you know, Joe Madden could have been held up for a great deal, or uh, I guess the Dan Duquette or the Duquette example is not good with uh, Toronto. But 
why are we not seeing more of that if, if mm-hmm. it's so concrete that three wins is worth, what, 18 to $20 million on the free agent market? Something like that, yeah. And, I mean, Joe Madden, I remember everybody freaking out when they heard that, wow, he's making $5 million a year. And 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 in terms of, uh, you know, he wasn't traded because he was he was able to opt out of his uh, his clause or his uh, his contract through a, uh, an escape clause. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the the history of managers being traded um, is actually, you know, you kind of get uh, for a guy who was really considered, you know, a high level manager. Um, you might get, you know, somebody who's, you know, sort of good and. You know that's a um, that seems to be kind of an inefficiency there. You know, for um, I don't know that uh, I I have to wonder if you know teams are in on this, and I, I honestly don't know, um, and whether um, they're able to say, okay, well, you know, we want to target this guy um, and 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 maybe have a, a value put on him. But yeah, you're right in terms of the um, the the free agent market for players. You know, a manager is an undervalued asset. Um, so maybe you know we'll see. In the same way, everybody was out trading for good framing catchers this past uh, off season. Um, maybe you'll start to see a run on some managers next year. I don't know. Well, then, and the final question before I move on from this question is: mm-hmm. uh, where it, where do you take this research that you're doing in the ne- in the future? What, what's six months down the line? What's the next evolution? Of, what's your next step <laughs> with this? Oh, in six months, if I'm still doing this, this is probably send help. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that the, I don't know that the data source would be out there to do this. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the natural conclusion to this would be that there are probably some things that, um, you know, the guys who are at the top of the list have in common. And, you know, we could start to look and say, okay, well, what, what things do they have that um, the guys at the bottom don't, um, you know, what are the ways that they're, they're able to do that? And maybe, um, you know, maybe there are, are several different ways that one can go about this. You know, what does Bud Black have in, in common with Terry Francona? They have in front, uh, contact or common with uh, Joe Madden. And, you know, maybe they do their things in, in three completely separate ways, but it works for them. Um, but, you know, it, it would be cool to have the ability to explore that and say, you know, are there are there things that um, teams could say to their manager, hey, you know, try this. This seems to work for them. Um, and that's, you know, that's something to, um, that would be a great field to mine. But I, I don't know that I, uh, I'd be able to do that uh you know, given what's out there, but that would be cool if I could. Well, I've been really, really intrigued and fascinated by the work you've done this winter. So I hope uh, to see where you take it kind of in the next level and what yeah. it looks like in a few months if we don't have to send help and you are still down the <laughs> mining down this road. Uh, I have a couple of more general questions, uh, mm-hmm. both for myself and from the group that I want to ask you and kind of just, you know, give you a platform to talk a little bit about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first question from the group uh, that I had this week is, uh, which teams are you finding most interesting this spring and why? Oh, see, interesting is such an interesting word because, I mean... Yeah, I've almost tried to ban it from this podcast. Yeah. Let's try fascinating I, or intriguing. Well, you know, I mean, like, for example, I mean, a team like, and, and you'll hate me for this, the Nationals, um, they're going to be good. 
they're just not all that interesting, you know, to me from from the perspective of somebody who doesn't have a rooting interest in them. You know, they're just kind of oh, okay, they're there. You know, they'll be good, but you know, there's not there's not a whole lot of unknown there. They're um they'll probably win the east and okay call me in october and we'll see what they're uh they're doing then um you know a team that um that fascinates me just from from more of a sociological uh perspective at this point is the new york yankees and i was actually thinking about this uh, earlier today you know think about think about this for a minute if you started making a list of you know the the best player in baseball the second best player in baseball et cetera, et cetera, and you kind of ranked the the players on down the line you know here's a question for you how long do you think you'd get until you hit a member of the new york yankees wow you know you think about it and and i and know, the I first name up and i'm like oh, first name that comes boy. to me is andrew miller yeah um and that's how sad it is maybe patances um, I mean, I, I pulled up, you know, just the war rankings from last year and I'm like, hmm, Jacoby Ellsbury, Chase Headley, <laughs> you know, Hiroki Kuroda. Um, and it's weird because, you know, when was the last time we were able to say something like that about the Yankees? I mean, realistically, the most interesting story right now is kind of people hate watching A-Rod right. and, and seeing, you know, what's he going to do next and, and – um, you know, is he going to make the team? Which is just a, a really weird thing to have to say about him. But um, you know, that's that's at least a legitimate question. Um, you know, so I mean, there's that. The in terms of interesting, the A's are always endlessly fascinating, especially since I believe they completely and totally turned over their roster twice in the course of the off season. Um, yeah, that that leads seeing, to that brings up a question for me, if I could. Yeah. Just what are your thoughts on clubhouse chemistry and turning over too many players, or quote unquote, too many players in a one-off season? You know, I don't know that it's a, a matter of turning over too many players. I, I I think that's the wrong thing to um to focus on. You know, okay. right there. The, the issue, and I, I define clubhouse chemistry is the answer to why should I bother? You know, again, long season, why should I bother coming to this meeting and paying attention when, you know, I went to a similar meeting yesterday and I'm just so tired and hurt. And, you know, the reason that you, you do that is, well, you know, you got a buddy, uh, you got buddies on the team and you don't want to let them down or you really believe in the cause and that kind of motivates you to keep going even when you don't want to. And so, you know, Having a cons- having consistency over the years can lead to some of those um, some of those relationships being formed, or you know you really have time to buy into the athletics way or something like that, and you um, you kind of drink the, the green and gold Kool Aid. <laughs> um, but that's the um, there's that, but that's not the only way to to develop some clubhouse chemistry there. You know, with the A's, you know, you, you probably got a lot of guys. I think they they had they all had name tags or something. I think I remember seeing that uh, that story going or going around. Um, and you know, you're going to get guys who are getting to know each other. And you know, you, you might you might get a group of of guys they've never met, and they just all end up either not liking each other or just outright hating each other, or they might all become best friends and. Um, in 20 years, they'll all be laughing about the uh, the good old days. So you know, I, I, 
it is kind of something that's that's thrown up into the air, but it, it just the fact that they turned it over is not a death sentence to clubhouse chemistry. I'll I'll put it that way. Um, so you know, but it's interesting though from a um, from the point of view of you know the A's they they look so different and yet they look they they, they still kind of reflect the image of of Billy Bean and and that. Uh, um, you know, Josh Donaldson's gone, but Ben Zobrist is there. You know, you traded one horribly underrated infielder for another horribly underrated infielder, um, and you know, it, it was a um, an, an off season that was kind of full of moves like that. So, I'm I'm interested to see what happens there, and um, so you know, it's you could probably find something interesting about every team, but. Um, but those are the ones that kind of popped into my head. Okay. Uh, another question from the group, and I, and I want to tread lightly on this subject because I don't want to sure. say it the wrong way, but you wrote a tremendous piece a couple of years ago about uh, the effects of drugs and alcohol on baseball players, and, and obviously Josh Hamilton is coming to mind kind of at the moment because he's in the news. I, I, I don't want to necessarily ask about Josh, but I, I just kind of want to get your thoughts on the entire subject and kind of what you found in that piece because I found it just an absolute terrific read i read it again today yeah the the hamilton situation you know it's a reminder that you know these guys are these guys are human and um you know some of them are going to have um substance use problems some are going to have mental health issues they're you know they're they are subject to all of the same things that that are going on uh with in, in the wider world you know hamilton's had um over a number of years he has um He's, you know, he's he's had problems with drugs and alcohol, and you know, to his credit, he also took some um, some very obvious steps to um, to make himself uh, better and and and, uh, and get help. Um, and you know, he he had a relapse, which um, unfortunately was, uh, um, I guess, happened over the off season. Um, you know, I, it's. Uh, it's interesting because he's he's kind of become the public face of of this issue, but you know there are other um, major leaguers who have had uh, drug and alcohol problems in the past, and I'm sure that there are some right now who are struggling through that right now. As um, in my uh, in my days as a clinical psychologist, I would of course uh, have some have a chance to to work with uh, people who um, had had uh, substance use problems, and you know. I, a lot of what I have heard over the past uh, couple or you know past couple of days, the past week since the Hamilton story broke was, you know, what should we do? How should we how should we handle this? And and not only that, but what kind of punishment should he get? And you know, I, I would encourage people that as you're as you're thinking about this, the closest thing I can comp somebody who is recovering from addiction to is you know imagine if um, you are you know. You, Somebody said to you, the only thing that will keep you alive um, is that if you right now uh, leave your home where you are right now, where you know, and especially if you've grown up there and or you've lived there for a number of years, um, and you are going to leave your home and you're going to start a new life um, in a completely different place, in a different city, different part of the country, whatever, um, and um, you know, you're you you can build a new life there there's that's fine um but at the same time you can never ever ever go back to visit and 
you think about how how heartbreaking that would be. I mean, I'm I grew up in Cleveland. I live in Atlanta, and I you know I treasure the couple times a year I get to go up and and visit my parents and and uh, and take my girls to see grandma and grandpa, um, and I get to you know poke around my my old hometown, and you know I I um, I, I think about oh what what if I couldn't do that? Well, you know somebody who has a drug or alcohol problem is trying to. Um, is trying to build an entirely new life around that, uh, around being sober. And the worst thing is that, you know, going back to visit is really easy. Um, you know, as one of the things I, I wrote in that article was that when you have a salary that has that many zeros in it, uh, finding a drug dealer isn't all that hard. And so, you know, but just as you, as you think about the Hamilton situation, you know, I, I want. Uh, I'm hoping that people would be thinking a little bit about, you know, how how difficult that really is um, to uh, to stay away from drugs and alcohol once you've you've gotten hooked, um, and to have a little bit of compassion for uh, for Mr. Hamilton and his situation, and you know, and and remember again, you know, we we think about these guys as just kind of disembodied, dehumanized things that. You know, run across the computer screen, and and you know you don't uh, you don't fully understand what it is uh, to live someone's life until you've been in it, and you know from um, from ten o'clock to seven o'clock they they all have lives, and you know some of them are struggling with things. So, you know, I I would hope that uh, the people who are listening to this would at least uh, as they as they follow the Hamilton situation or some other player who who might uh, go through this. Um, they, you would take a moment and and, and think about uh, think about that person with a little bit of compassion. Well, and the tough thing to me about you know quote unquote punishing the man is you're mm-hmm. going to be taking away baseball from him, which is probably the biggest love that he has in, in his life besides his family. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. mean, so then all of a sudden taking that away from him and now giving him more time up by himself or away from what he loves, it almost seems like a uh, like you're trying to do a uh, self fulfilling prophecy almost. Well, yeah, I mean that's. I mean, not for everybody, and I don't want to make excuse. In that may not be the right word, but it just seems like that's not the right way to try to help the man. I guess is the way I'm trying to say it. Well, routine and structure is a good way to help somebody who's going through a substance problem and who's trying to recover. And basically, what you have to do is you have to build an entirely new way of of living your life. Um, and you know, having having those support systems there is is very key i'm sure that uh, josh hamilton has a number of friends in the game of baseball and you know hopefully people who are looking out for him and saying you know this is this is a good reason to keep sober and and that's why he uh i'm i'm sure that there were times where he was tempted and he may have thought of you know one of his friends in the game who said hey you know um i don't want to see you go down that path again you know i'm your friend and that maybe that stopped him from using i i sincerely hope he has that in his life um and you know some of that, some of that may be family, and that's fine. You know that's that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, I I, I worry that that you know the biggest the biggest question that's kind of come up is how are we going to punish him, and you know rather than how are we going to help him. Um, and I, I think that if we if we took the uh, the viewpoint of how are we going to help him, that's going to be a lot more um, a lot better of a, a question to ask and how to handle this from. Uh, um, uh, from 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 the you know kind of figuring out what the next step is, I think that's perfectly well said. Uh, one more question or topic from the group that uh, 
I wanted to throw out there to you, and it's off the script, so I'm okay. apologizing in advance. But uh, we've been uh, seeing you tweet and uh, comment a fair amount uh, about women and sports yeah. writing and the difficulties in the baseball culture. Yeah. Uh, just as my own personal, I remember going to Saber seminar last year. You were yeah. uh, one of the many wonderful speakers there, and looking in the audience, and if there were five women in the 500 people that were there, I, I would be. I would take the under. Yeah, and so I, sure. I, I, I want to just throw this to you is why are we seeing because there are so many great women sports writers. I mean, yes, there are. Uh, Susan. And if I get her last name right, I'm, I'm apologizing. Sluicer over for the Oakland. Susan Sluster, yeah. I mean, she's one of the best writers out there. And she was head of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect example. So mm -hmm. I, the question I'm trying to ask, the topic I'm trying to bring up a little bit is why are we not seeing so many more females in in the profession? Well, I mean, you know, let's be honest about it. Uh, you know, the guys who are listening to this, um, we created the problem. Uh, there are a lot, a lot of women who are, you know, obviously fantastic writers. They love baseball. And whether they're into, um, you know, writing about it from a statistical point of view, prospects, um, you know, just kind of writing about the game itself, whether it's, you know, uh, more of a, uh, you know, poetry writing or something like that, that kind of, uh, uh, that kind of writing, they're out there. And we have, uh, we as men have kind of messed this up. Um, you know, there, I know that uh, um, there was the story that came out on Kurt Schilling. Um, you know, he tweeted out, he said, hey, you know, my daughter got accepted to college. She got a, um, a scholarship to pitch a softball at, and I, I don't remember which university it was. Um, but, you know, he was a proud dad and he was tweeting out about, uh, about his daughter. And there were people, you know, people congratulated him and people I'm sure gave him a hard time for, um, because they cheered for some other team that was, uh, that he beat or something. But, and then there were the, the guys who said just some awful, terrible, horrible things. And, um, you know, that's, that's unfortunately something that, um, is out there. And that's something that, um, you know, as a, um, as a man and as, uh, as someone who, you know, I, I, I got blood on my hands on this one too. Um, I have said inappropriate things, uh, and I, I, that I very much regret. Um, and that's something that, um, that just basically that needs to stop. Um, and you know, I think that, um, baseball writing in general really suffers from the fact that there are voices that would be awesome, that would be um, you know, would write great stuff that are just kind of like, you know, I just don't want to deal with that. And I can't say I blame them, you know? Um, and we're kind of just as people who love baseball shooting ourselves in the foot when we behave like that. So, you know, that's something that when I think about um, the issue of women in sports writing, that's that's something that, that kind of comes up. I mean, there's um, the, uh, I don't think the ladies have, uh, have done anything wrong. I think this is something that um, we as as men um, have have made the uh, made the problem, and it's up to us to fix it. Um, so you know, I'm I am hoping that uh, the people who are listening to this podcast, and I know they're um, probably going to skew overwhelmingly male, but um, you know, if you are if you are out there and you see it, then call the person who's doing it on it. Um, that's that's the way that we get. 
um, people feeling more comfortable to come in and, and write awesome stuff. So, you know, if you like if you like baseball and if you like awesome baseball writing, that's what you got to do. Well, let me ask a question because, and just to bring this up, and, and I'm not trying to play devil's advocate because that's sure. not where I'm at, but is much of the problem the fact that I would say 80 to 90% of interviews occur in the locker room or in the clubhouse where men are walking around naked? I mean, let's be very honest here. And I, I would think that most men would be more comfortable talking to a male if he's sitting there in his underwear than a female. And I'm not saying that that's right, but I'm just, is that where the problem exists or do you, or do you think it's more than that? Well, you know, I'm thinking that you know, there there may be some of that, and but you know the work of uh, um, the work of the, the the women who are out there and have done this, and you you mentioned Susan, and and there are some other um, some other women sports writers who are out there who do that, you know, suggest that you know you get past that, and I have to wonder, you know, having not been a major leaguer myself, I have to wonder how much of that is. You know, people just not feeling comfortable sitting there, you know, half naked or all naked doing an interview. Um, and I wonder how much of that just kind of goes away after a little while and whether it's just, oh, great, I'm doing another I'm doing another interview, you know, dripping wet out of the shower. And here, here's your quote, you know, go away. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much of that that is that's there. Um, you know, it is. It is a very strange um, uh, thing because I, I think I read a piece that was, um, you know, we, we spend so much time kind of practicing selective nudity um, and, you know, where, where we are naked and where we are not, um, especially, you know, from in, in the presence of, of, uh, of the other gender. Um, and, and then baseball is just kind of this, or, you know, professional sports, I should expand it to, is this weird sort of thing where, you know, all of those rules get thrown out the window. And so, you know, it is kind of a weird space, um, but, you know, if people are being, you know, professionals and will just, you know, go to reasonable adults, you can get past that. Um, and so, you know, it, I'm guessing that it would be awkward for a little while for some, for some players and, and um, but, you know, once you kind of realize, oh, this is a workplace, this is just kind of how, how things are around here it would be okay. Um, so, you know, I, maybe that's a little bit in there, but I, I think that there's, there's a bigger issue around the culture of, of how women are treated both in professional sports and just in, in general, um, that, uh, that's out there. Um, that uh, I think is, is the bigger thing that we need to worry about. Um, I think the issue of the locker room and, and, and uh, the nudity aspect, that's, that's something that can, um, that that can kind of be fixed. Yeah, I tend to agree. I just, I always wonder, I'm not a female and I'm certainly not, sure. I haven't come up in that role, so I don't know how intimidating or uncomfortable or whatever the word choice I'm looking for is. But uh, like you said, it's unfortunate that, I mean, I went, I was in college and took a lot of writing classes. I was typically the only male in those classes. And then all yeah. of a sudden I go to, you know, I'm in sports writing situations and I'm, there's no females or there's one female and mm -hmm. she's the outsider. So like you say, we need to be getting more of these talented writers, female, male, but particularly the female side, Absolutely. you know, participating. So, well, hopefully us bringing that up, will uh, do something down the line. If Hope we can, so. if we can pat ourselves on the back that well. So, uh, 
<laughs> it's oh, be constantly trying to to help out as much as you can in life. So, but yeah, I, I you know I hope so, and I I hope that uh, you know I hope that there are uh, I hope there are women out there who are thinking you know I I could write something cool about baseball who would be thinking hey you know let me let me give this a try and um, and I hope that uh, um, the ones who are really really good eventually. Uh, um, are are ones are names that I'm reading on a on a daily basis and commanding people to read. Yeah, that's absolutely for sure. So, Russell, uh, Russell, thank you so much for uh, giving me so much time tonight. I don't want to use or take up any more of your time on a Friday night. I know you got a family. I know you got kids and all that good stuff. But I want to give you a spot here before we go to uh, just for your plugs, where they can find oh, you yes. on Twitter, where they can find you online, anything you want to plug, my friend. Oh boy. Uh, well, um, baseball prospectus, obviously. Um, I'm, uh, there every, every Tuesday. Um, and I also write over at, uh, just a bit outside, which is the, um, the Fox sports site, uh, which is a jabo.com. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at pizza cutter four. Um, and, uh, you can, Head on over to my house, I suppose. You know, I suppose I shouldn't give that out on the line, but yeah, um, we'll edit that one out. Yeah, okay, that's that's a good one. So, uh, it's one two three Main Street. No, it's uh, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much me. Um, I'm just a random guy who writes about baseball in my spare time. So, um, well, don't so be feel too free. well, don't be too <laughs> modest, Russell. You you do tremendous work, and uh, like I said, you gave a tremendous presentation last year at Saber Seminar, where I. I think I first became acquainted with you and a huge fan of your work that you do at BP and uh, also just uh, a bit outside. So thanks. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, I hope we can have you again as a guest uh, sometime down the road. That'd be awesome. And thanks again for just being such a willing fan and participant with everything that's going on at Banish to the Pen. We appreciate the support. Hey, keep it up, guys. And that was episode 11 of the Banish to the Pen podcast with baseball prospectuses Russell Carlton. Thanks to him for joining me this week. With that, this episode is a wrap. I am your host, Ryan Sullivan, at NatsGM.com on Twitter, reminding you, be nice to your fellow listeners.